It was one of those times where, you know, you always want to tell a dope dealer, man, if you just put all this energy into a legitimate business, man, you could make so much. But you tell somebody that's that's moving a quarter million bucks a week that and it's not really realistic. And not paying taxes. <laughs> like, or... Actually, you, you couldn't make that kind of money. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into The Fort. I have a really good friend of mine, Tegan Broadwater, on the podcast today. Tegan is the founder of Tactical Systems Network, LLC. This is a episode unlike any other episodes because we spend a lot of time in his journey prior to starting the business which is one of the coolest stories I've ever heard in my life. I can't wait for this message to spread. Tegan is already having a large impact on his community, and I'm confident he's a person that will change the world. Thanks for continuing on this journey with me, and please enjoy. This will be a little different than some of ours where we jump straight into business. Before we get into business, I think it's really important that people know Tegan's background. So. Without further ado, <laughs> why don't you just start your story? You're just going to give me that much room? I'm going to give you enough rope to uh, to hang yourself if you need to. Wow. So um, I don't know how far back you want to go, but you know, since I was a kid, the, in, the intention of the universe was to make me into a rock star. Yeah. So, I, uh, I was a musician all through high school. My roomies were musicians. I went to North Texas State at the time, university, which is now UNT, to study music. I studied, studied uh, jazz performance there. That was my jam for a long time. I left school to go on the road and toured a little bit and kind of hit a dead end in terms of the music business itself. Mm-hmm. Loved music, loved writing music, loved playing music was burnt out on the industry and, and, and the powers that be. So why it was, I felt like we were spinning wheels in a lot of ways, trying to pay off Coke dealers that owned a club <laughs> and then we had to bring 500 people into, and, uh, it was, it was political, but yeah. at the time you got to understand too, I was, you know, coming out of my teens and into my early twenties. And so feeling like things are political, I felt like I needed to move something to something that wasn't political, not knowing that every other thing that I moved to is also going to be political. (laughs) So, uh, so that was part of, part of that. And it was something that was, that was fairly intense for me because since fourth grade, I was, you know, supposed to be the, the next uh, rock star or whatever. So I hadn't even contemplated what else to do. Uh, had my son also in 95, which is the same same year the last album I was on was released. And so it was just a kind of a perspective change and all that kind of stuff happens at that point. And having played through a handful of bands uh, in my earlier years where a bunch of cops used to come watch us, um, I ended up 
getting familiar with them and in, in good relationships with those guys and, and started asking questions about police work and they were really encouraging about it. Cut off eight inches of locks and when the first first shot got on for PD, which I thought was pretty extraordinary, uh, went in there green as ever, but I was super moldable because yeah. you know up to that point I was a you know peace loving musician dude and um, how old I, were you? I was twenty six or okay. seven ish okay. at that time. So I got on there and kind of my my whole approach to it was with the relationships I've had in the music industry and the types of people that I hung out with, I wasn't necessarily a, a druggie or anything like that, but you know, when you're in the music industry, you know plenty of people in that arena. Mm-hmm. And I also, even through high school and everything else, I had I had friends on every side of the, of the fence that there was. You know, I had surfer dudes and stoners and preppies and football players and whatever, or just got along with people. I just, just one of those guys that just I guess can see through some of the facades. I just like people that are good people. Yeah. Uh, so I felt like I, I was, I was kind of shooting towards being a, a, a undercover guy, a narcotics guy. I thought it would be exciting to kick in doors, but I also thought that I would excel at narcotics and then work the street there for about five years. And then on my fourth try to get into nar- narcotics, I finally did. Um, Why you know, didn't you get in the first three? Well, I'm a white stiff, and there's no question about that. And and I understand that, that culturally they want to engage with people that they feel like can fit into certain neighborhoods where they're having specific problems. Right. So, and that was understandable. It wasn't a, a, a racism issue by any stretch. Right. Um, however, I had been, I had gone to my bosses and put myself and my team through a SWAT schools and was already from a patrolman's position was already buying dope. And then after we get off shift, we were all gearing up with SWAT's uh, discarded gear and busting down doors and taking down small time dealers and, um, and earning overtime to do that already. So I was kind of establishing myself in terms of what kind of resume I had, what kind of informants that I was using and getting a tad bit of experience and and going in myself and doing a couple of little small buys just getting those types of experience by the time i put in that fourth time i said look i've you know i've already served you know 300 search warrants and i've got you know four ci's on the books and i've bought this or whatever so it was kind of like well i didn't matter what neighborhood it is apparently because he's doing it anyway right and so and that's really really where i kind of flourished and i ended up with a boss that was very um ambitious and i was that guy just that just likes to work um and go out on my own some of my co-workers kind of thought i was a cowboy or some even thought i was lazy because i wasn't around very much but yeah i I mean i don't care i was just the guy that's out trying to get stuff i was excited about the work and so i got really good at it and found a project that was in the same kind of neighborhood where i'd actually patrolled in but by this time i had a had a two-inch goatee, and that's about it, and a little bit longer <laughs> hair. It wasn't that big of a difference, to be honest with you, but not in uniform. People don't recognize you. would be surprised. So I started a little project in a small little neighborhood sect that had been gang-ridden since the days of patrol and since the early 90s, and the city council had approved funds for narcotics and gang to do stings, and everybody was striking out and everything out there, and they were finding out that it seemed seemingly impenetrable. It was gang ridden. There were great people that lived in there that were held hostage essentially by the gang violence and the drug dealing that was going on and prostitution, you know, at the corners. So it's about a, you know, a six square block area, very small. How many houses? Uh, 
200, 100? Oh, not even. No, it's, uh, well, that's a good question. Somebody's going to go back and research this yeah. and, and make fun of me for being so wrong. But I would say there's probably, I'm just trying to paint Man, There a may picture. be 100 houses. 100 houses. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and a lot of the city's crime is happening in 100 houses. Yeah, it was it was a serious deal. I mean, we we termed it the fishbowl actually when I was in patrol. They called it the fishbowl because anytime you pull in there, they have lookouts. There's only one way in and one way out, so you're pretty much seen when you enter. Right. And they're radioing to the folks that are dealing and doing whatever. So by the time you get to any of the action, the action is quelled and you miss it. Um, there were guys hitting houses and sending informants and pulling in in unmarked vans and doing just jump outs, and it was just very unsuccessful. So. Um, I, I had sat down with an informant one day and, you know, threw out the idea like, Hey man, I'd like to go in here and it's the only way we're going to solve this issue. There's good people in there. It's an ambitious thing, but I like to go in and work some undercover deals and see if we can blow this thing from the inside out. And of course the, the statement, <laughs> the statement that I live by was like, you're here. <laughs> that's, that's a horrible idea. Yeah. What, what time? Yeah. So that's pretty much was the mantra. Like, okay, this is really stupid. When yep. are we when are we leaving? So um, that's pretty much what we did. We kind of launched into that, and that started the Operation Fishbowl. Uh, I ended up. I I had a chat with my wife and got her on board with it. She was not happy, but totally supportive. So the plan was you were going to go in undercover, and you were going to find out how all this was happening in a hundred houses. Right. We're okay. going to be. You know, my my objective was I want to hit the suppliers and figure out where it's coming from and blow it up that way. It's gang violence. So my plan was really to go in as a drug dealer who had just been busted by the feds on a different side of town so that I wasn't necessarily competition. I yep. was an opportunity. So I came over as a drug dealer. Obviously I didn't, it's a, it was a crip ridden neighborhood and I wasn't going in as a crip obviously. And I know this isn't video, but I don't look like a crip even yeah. when I try. Yeah. Um, and I understood that. So, but part of the part of the process in supporting an organization like the Crips is selling dope. So that was my one angle that I came in and said, look, my source got busted by the feds. I'm, you know, running big stuff over on the west side. I'm over here looking for something and was asking for uh, powdered cocaine, which when you're starting at the bottom level and trying to work your way in, you come up to a crack dealer on the on the sidewalk. And, well, they don't have powdered cocaine, but the guy four levels above him started buying cocaine and then cooked it down and send it down to somebody, to somebody, to somebody till this dude has his little rocks. Yeah. So ultimately what I would do is once they got to know me and be familiar, some said no, some said yes, whatever. I work my way up until they start trusting me. It's really kind of about the dollar. They just want to make some. So I said, look, you know, I'm, that's what I'm looking for. But if you can maybe help me up the road, I'll see if I can move some of that crack. You know, so you're so literally that. pulling in, getting out of your car, walking up to some dude. And this is at the very beginning and saying, I want some powdered cocaine with no security around you or anything. Right. But here's how it, it was a little different. Um, first of all, I didn't get out of the car, okay. but, and I leveraged that informant in a significant way because I went in with the informant and I said, here's what I want to do. How did you get the informant? Well, the informant I've been working with cause I had a number of informants. And that was somebody or, that had been living in the hundred houses. No, they didn't live there, Got but, it. but they, they, they fit the profile and, yeah. and to be honest, had a drug problem and it was going to be a little easier. Yep. So what I did was I leveraged them and I said, look. You have some white dude just pulls down and says, hey, I want to buy some dope. And then, you know, everyone either laughs or they kill you or whatever. That's not going to happen. I knew that's not going to happen. I was yeah. experienced enough to know that. 
But so I brought him in with me and said, look, here's what we're going to do. I'm funding you. You got this game. You're trying to hustle. You're trying to get this in. You're bringing me with you because I'm funding you. So essentially, they come up to the window. They start giving me the 20 questions, of course, because I still look conspicuous and, you know, which is fine. And I know how to play that off because it's just about the money. It's about the whatever. This is the game. I'm here for him. You don't have to worry about me. I ain't touching none of that stuff. So mm-hmm. that was my whole premise. Like, look, you're not having me touching none of that stuff. This is about him. Uh, he and I have this agreement, and I'm trying to support his hustle. So, you know, this is, this is what he needs. And I say what he needs. And they come over after time. They discuss it, have a little kind of a, a powwow about it, come back, and they want to hand the dope. To me, again, I say, hey, this is all about him. And then I essentially pull the money out, hand it to him to give to the dealer, mm-hmm. which essentially facilitates the actual transaction. If I wanted to at that point, I could have you know, brought it to a, to a DA at that point and prosecuted right. him for a deal because I'm witnessing it. I'm handing the money over. They're handing the, you know, whatever. Right. But, but that was just a part to get me a little bit settled to where they see me present, then they see... It going to him, they see me being extra cautious as a dope dealer would be, you know, saying, look, I don't, I don't, I don't want to touch this stuff. This is about something else. And they, so they feel like it's legit. I'm not trying to push them to hand me stuff or spend more money or give me more or whatever, which is what a typical cop might do. Yep. So, um, over time, you know, months and months pass, you know, I told you, I, I'd vetted this with my wife and told her it was going to be about three months long and, you know, it was going to be a big deal. And. Um, after the first eight months of <laughs> being in and doing nothing but spending weekends and late nights and, you know, 80 hour weeks of just showing up and half the time I was down there with very limited funds. Was that all you were doing? That's all I was doing. Yeah. Uh, I would show down there with limited funds. I'd, you know, stack a hundred ones and, and eight twenties together in a giant wad and buy a hundred bucks worth of something first you know, say, Hey man, I'll, I'll buy some of your stuff. That's not what I'm looking for, but I'll see if I can move it. You know, here's a hundred and I'll pull it off this giant wad. So they think I'm some kind of big player, but I'm still dealing with Fort Worth PD money, which is so limited. So after the eight months, we, we essentially shopped it to the feds and the FBI was the best one. They have a gang tax force and they were trying to, to get rid of the, the gang issue. They funded me. So I got a new Range Rover. We got cameras. We got all this other stuff going on. I got money. I got to finally start buying big. You know, I kept promising for all those months that we're going to do something big. Now I was doing bigger things. And, you know, the book explains a lot of it. There's other people that I leveraged that had lots of money that didn't even know who I was. They assumed I was a bad guy by that time because I didn't need informants anymore because I was T on the street. Everybody knew who I was and, and, I was sending people in to make large purchases that didn't know who I was, but I had, I had the confidence of the dealers behind me. So they were yeah. protecting me right. and you and I run into new dealers that are trying to break into the game that have money or they got an inheritance or whatever. And I'm saying, Hey, you go in, you tell them that's teeth money and I'll call ahead and tell them I'm sending you and let them go do their deals. Yep. And they're spending money that I don't have. Right. And they still think it's all coming from me. Right. And it's, you know, the communication is going. So again, the reputation grows and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, that, that blew up over or 18 months. I was undercover for that entire time. And then when you're undercover and there's so many correlations to like business and everything you've said, oh. and, and we'll get into that in a bit, but when you're undercover, do you start changing as a person? Y- yes, absolutely. Uh, but I, one thing I did that is, that is, 
atypical, I would say, because of the movies that were out and everything else, is that my personality was pretty much intact. I just had to understand that much like the Crips, there are a lot of things that are just dudes about Crips. I mean, they're cool dudes. Then we talk about football. I play them at Madden, and we talk crap about who's going to win the Madden, and then we share a 40 and what out. So you're just hanging out in the house with them. You were one of the boys. Yeah. So I try not to – I didn't try to create a persona that was so outrageous that I would have to remember all kinds of stuff. I mean, essentially, it was myself with the caveat that if I really wanted to start a dope empire how would i do it and that was how i would do it right and i was essentially doing it. that was the only caveat that really was a different part of my personality and started yeah. otherwise i was talking to him like i talked to you you know yeah this might be a weird question how much of like a crypt is like your everyday guy like they're 80 percent everything and then 20 percent of them is when they get into like mode uh, it would depend on the level of player that I, I dealt with a lot of people. So we had, um, uh, 51 arrests at the end of this thing. Okay. Essentially. At all different rankings, all different rankings. Okay. Some guys were middlemen. Some guys were just trying to hustle. Describe stuff. the hierarchy. Um, well, in essence, you've got somebody that connects with the Mexican source that pulls it, that brings it in and then they give it to their lieutenants who Is have that it. source in Fort Worth. That source is in Fort Worth. Okay was in forward yeah and but there are still others honestly. yeah uh, but these just so you know this wasn't a dope case this was a gang case so just know that this particular thing was aimed at gangs not yeah. necessarily the drug issue yeah so he would come in and then give it to his lieutenants or which there were a couple he would okay. give it to them they would have it cooked down into crack which essentially will turn a kilo of cocaine can be flipped into two kilos almost of crack and then those guys would go drop it at their their sergeant level dealers or or their their trap houses. So they would go around and take like a quarter kilo of crack. They go drop it at one of their little houses in the hood, mm-hmm. and then they've got workers in those houses that sell that dope all day long at that house, which is essentially your dope house, your typical dope house. Okay. So they go stow it in the engine of a car, come out, replenish it. People come up and buy dope from them that they know that are dope heads and whatever. And then those people also supply typically the crack level dealers, which are the street level guys who are selling, you know, 10, 20, 50 tops, sometimes a hundred bucks worth of crack. Those guys come in the window, get them at a certain discount, go sell it, come back with the money, take their cut, get another small sack, go out and sell them out on the street. So essentially, you know, as you, as you do the math and you say, you know, we're buying a kilo at the time, um, those guys were buying kilos at around, 16 grand a kilo and then you flip that into two kilos and then you sell them at you know at at a street level where you're selling them you know for a 0.25 um gram yeah you're talking about you know a quarter gram yeah and spending 25 bucks for a quarter gram by the time you get to a thousand of those you're you're making a lot yeah, 250 grand. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it flips into a lot of money. So essentially that money comes back up to your, up the hierarchy to your guy who's now taken that same thing that the small time crack leader does. He's taken his cut back. Everyone's paying him for the product that they've sold. He gives the cuts. He takes his large cut and then goes and buys more kilos. So this particular guy was doing anywhere from, well, he was, he was spending about 200 grand a week. And re-upping with stuff. And then, of course, it was going a lot of different places. But yeah. 
Um, that's where essentially, as I worked outside the, you know, started in the fishbowl and worked outside as I followed sources and followed other crypts and followed different sects of crypts. There's five deuce and four trays and I was following them into Pali and different places and finding out where stuff was going. It's quite organized. It's pretty, actually pretty impressive. Yeah. It was one of those times where, you know, you always want to tell a dope dealer, man, if you just put all this energy into a legitimate business, man, you could make so much, but you tell somebody that's, that's moving a quarter million bucks a week that, and it's not really realistic and not paying taxes <laughs> like, or actually you, you couldn't make that kind of money yeah. probably, <laughs> <laughs> but it is still is what it is. You still got to exchange the time of success that he had for, you know, 25 years in the pen. So. That's and, not good. Obviously. And so was your goal to not stop until you got to the top? That was my goal. And and I knew who my guy was just because of my intel and the time that I spent in those neighborhoods prior to. I would have loved, honestly, to, to get the Mexican source as well, which I did try. But the, the you know, by the time I got through this, you know, like I said, 18 months and yep. starts drawing attention and everything else, you can only do so much. And the, the federal prosecutor just drew a line. So this is where we're going to stop. And it was it was a magnificent case. I was. I was really. So how did it end? Oh, we we prosecuted everybody and like I said, rounded up fifty-one. Yeah, we had two hundred and fifty law enforcement people from. You planned like the date and the time, and yeah, we all met in a high school gym and and uh, you know, narc guys and gang guys and uh, other other agencies and ATF and FBI and DEA guys and for SWAT. I mean, it was. There was a ton of people involved. It was actually pretty, pretty incredible uh, coordination. Uh, the first day, we only got 17 or 18 of the 51 targets mm -hmm. because, you know, you have to catch them and guess where they're going to be and actually hit it right every time, uh, which was a dangerous time. Of course, you do the roundup. Now everybody knows something's up and information starts leaking around. People are on the run. So it's imperative that you hurry up and find these other guys. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those guys end up flipping you know, because again, we're, by then we're not interested in dope. This is a gang conspiracy case, and you know, there's good proof because the cop actually is doing hand to hands with these people and all that kind of stuff. So, really, at that point, you're. I had guys that I really liked that I was really hoping would flip because you know it. It there was an so earnest flipping, telling well, the truth. Yeah. So if, if you pull them in and you debrief them, and they're willing to give you information that could be significant in, to law enforcement, then then essentially, you know, I or the FBI agent working with, along with me uh, supervising the case would be able to testify on their behalf and try to keep their time down. Yeah. And most of the time that works successfully. Yeah. The big problem is that you're kind of asking them to trust you because you can't make any promises about what's going to happen. Right. Because you don't know what information it is. And if they give you great information that's already been proved up by somebody else. And I, so I can't control it, but yeah. we did see a, a few people that we really were able to help out in a pretty significant way. They turned around and got right out pretty, pretty early. They were very helpful. And I, you know, I, some of them have been successful, some of them haven't, but, uh, it's always my hope that, you know, that people can turn around and have that moment of clarity where like, they just finally get scared against the wall and, and say, man, I never want to be in this situation again. So, um, it's turned out to be. Like I said, it was, there's been long sentences, but several people have gotten out. Some are, some are, recip you know, the recidivism is, is in play. And with other ones, they're really just trying to make it. And I, I wish them the best. I, I hope they make it. Yeah. So ultimately, I'm making And that was how many long. years ago? That was in, when it I ended. started in 2005 and it ended in 2007. Okay. And then the so trials went ago. through 2008. Okay. And then, um, 
and then I kept having people encouraging me to write a book about it. And, you know, I was like, well, I don't need to write a book. I mean, I told you I was a musician. So right. I'm like, what do I want to be an author? I, I already know you're not going to make any money in the arts. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I'm still haven't figured all that out yet. But yeah, um, eventually having conversation with a couple of uh, an agent got a hold of me and, and we had a conversation and 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 finally focused on the kids that were left behind, which essentially was. You take the father out of the of the scenario, even though some of these guys were not great fathers, you're still removing a father figure and putting them in prison. Right. So that's what causes the big cycle. Yep. So ultimately, by arresting all these people, we're only doing half of our job. Right. And it's all that the police can do, to be honest with you. That's, that's the police job. So what I thought was, all right, author this book. We try to, to bring attention and donate all the profits of the book to charities that mentor these kids that's at an awesome. early age. So that we have these 104 kids that were left on this particular thing. They all get, well, they don't specifically get, but some of them were specifically in the, in the programs that we supported. They get mentored. The mothers get mentored and help and taught how to support the family and everything else. The men are taught responsibility and manners and discipline and accountability. So that, that you know, 20 years later, you don't have another T going undercover and arresting all those dudes. Because yep. then... That's really for not at that point. So yep. that's been kind of my plight is really supporting those groups that do that. And, yeah. you know, that's kind of where that where that was born. And that whole experience fried my brain. It was something I was super passionate about and super into. I tried yeah. I tried to start another one that, since I was flying by the seat of my pants for those two years. Now I really could plan it out. And, yeah. But it drew so much attention that. The, you, there's no way I could have made it happen. There's too many supervisors that want to stick their fingers in and stuff. And, you know, the only reason I got away with it the first time is I had supervisor that used to just let me roll because he trusted I was going to be doing the right thing and he would just kind of cover it for me. So that's when I decided I'll do something like super low risk, like start my own business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, working eighty-hour weeks. You were ready to start your own business, giving it the fourth try, and just going after it anyway. Not taking no for an answer. Hmm? Um, planning out your whole strategy prior to doing that mission. I'm imagining you did some planning here. There's so many correlations to what you did that you were oh, basically absolutely. running a business on your own. And I'll tell you something else significant based on even some what you said. One of the things that I learned that that actually accepting no is actually very advantageous also because there's a lot of people that will be told no, but they still try to to push that door open accept the no and move on to other opportunities yep. that make that make the most sense and that's a lot of what i did i was like look you know you're giving me 20 questions i'm here to do business yeah and if you're not here to do business that's cool because i got other people i can go see to do business you just give me the answer that you need because i'm not here to just screw around and answer a bunch of questions i'm not going to ask you where you live you don't ask me where i live i'm trying to do business here yeah it's the same type of thing you know we have uh, in our security and investigations firm now, we have if somebody has a need and it's and it's we're a perfect fit, great. But I've sat for hours with people before, and we've decided that it's not really a good time or it's not a good fit. And I'm perfectly fine with that because yep. I've shared information, they've shared information. It's relationship building. All of the fishbowl stuff was relationship building. It seemed it it's n wasn't as much of a farce as it looks on the, on the outside obviously right. because after a year and a half they're actual relationships right um i think it would be fascinating to spend like 10 minutes and 5 10 minutes 
discussing how the similarities, because it is a business of like what you learned from them that made you a better business person. Oh, oh I mean, absolutely. It, you talk, I imagine like the top is the CEO then mm-hmm. he's got his leadership team, which are his, his lieutenants. Yep. Then he's got his, you know, lieutenants in training, his sergeants. And then he's all the way down to like the intern, which is at the street level crack dealer or something yeah. that's just learning, you know, the basics. But what else do they do that it well, sounds like it's very, very organized? It is very. And I'll tell you what, when you look at that hierarchy and you think about it, a, a lot of it, as you start from the street level, it's very self-motivated. Mm-hmm. So when you have people that come into a company at the bottom level, whatever that is, they're looking for their first job. They're looking to hit a certain number and everything else. It doesn't mean they're motivated strictly by that, but it's an entry level thing. The higher up you go in a company, and it was the company that taught me this, not the police department, because I wasn't promoted in the police department. Now that I've owned a company, I totally understand a lot of the perspectives that were thrown my way that I thought were political there. But the higher up you get, the more you have the teamwork aspect and you preach team and you want everyone to be part of a team. Um, And what I see in my company is you'll have hey, we have an issue with so-and-so and and I'll send you to go deal with this issue. And when you come back, you got the guy with the issue, you have his back Yep. because your job is to actually mentor and lead. Yes. So you're going and coaching him. So you're an advocate for him when you come back to me. Yeah. So the higher up you get, the more you become an advocate for the company. Yep. It doesn't mean you're only advocating for the company because you still also advocate for the employees, but you gain a different perspective once you get to that level. So a lot of these guys that were double crossing and everything else, and that's where you get the shootings and the thefts and all those different things that happen at the lower levels is because of their perspective. It's all self-centered perspective. Like I'm trying to make mine. I can make this much money today. I'm going to do this. And I don't want somebody taking over my turf. This is mine. This is mine. And then the higher up you get, your allegiance gets more centered toward your your kingpin so to say how do you move up is it like at the, i'm imagining at the street levels that like you have to push enough product or be there enough years or like how do you move up in this system um it's it's different for everybody um but when you're talking about a street gang a lot of it is uh the same as mafioso type stuff so if you're the baddest dude and you've got bodies behind you and people are intimidated by you and then you're the guy there's always there's always kind of the the person that separates themselves anyway with a personality but when you add that personality where everyone even though you're on the same level they look at you as kind of the leader that's where this guy defined himself and then he set himself apart by, you know, robbing stores and, and plugging somebody in the head on the way out. And then people know this guy does not screw around. I've watched him work and he's, you know, he's making money after money after money. and He's doing a business right. I want my allegiance to be to him. So it's, it's a lot more intimidation than would be in a company. I was going to say, because I'm sitting here going, if you've made it to a lieutenant, you're obviously a bad mother. Right. What is, and you have several lieutenants, what's keeping them from just killing the guy at the top and taking over the top? The fact that the guy at the top is, has established himself in a way that you actually have that respect for Who's him. got the guy at the top's back? The other lieutenants? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or some That's guy why in Mexico. I say, no, it's the no, the guy in Mexico doesn't care. The guy in Mexico wants his money back when you flip the stuff. So that's why I say the higher up you get, the more responsible to the company, quote yeah. unquote, that you have and to this kingpin. Yeah. Um, and that's the another parallel that doesn't work because when people say, Hey, uh, you know, I feel like this was a bad situation, but I have an allegiance to you and I really want this to work. And I will stop them there. So like, I, I want you to appreciate me as much as I appreciate you. But the allegiance has to be to the company because I look at it the same way. It's not personal. It's about the company. And it's the only parallel I can make here is that this was about the mission and doing what is right according to my job. And that's why I did what I did. It wasn't personal. But from their perspective, it's still um, you know, the intimidation and all that kind of stuff is obviously not the kind of culture that you want to provide. You yeah. want, you want people to aspire to follow you, but for good reasons, not bad reasons. Yeah. And that's why a lot of those things, you know, kind of fall apart in their cyclical as well. And the other way that somebody comes, takes over is that this dude goes and does 25 years. Well, somebody yeah. has to step in. So at, at the top, uh, is this, I'm just envisioning like some dude that's six, eight, 350 a solid muscle is this dude just hiding in plain sight and he's nothing close to that or is it a physical thing or not always a lot of the a lot of the mid-level guys were kind of intimidating some of them are some of them aren't i mean it's it's a makeup of a neighborhood right so you've got guys that uh that are in great shape and and are are boxers or shooters or whatever but for the most part not really um this kingpin here was Average height, fairly good-looking dude, very smart. Um, and then whatever issues had plagued him to become a criminal throughout his early years had had set him up. Yeah. But he wasn't. Uh, no, he wasn't a, a MMA yeah. guy or a or a giant wrestler type necessarily at all. So you you accomplish your mission. I would imagine there was like a bit of like. sadness towards the end of it oh ton you had gotten to know these people your passion of of getting this done was over Mm -hmm. what was that like it was very stressful there's tons of anxiety excitement certainly during the the actual roundup there's a lot of excitement yeah Um, by the time we got everybody rounded up and we were debriefing it was just like and I was just praying like that. I hope this guy will talk and understand what's going on. We had different responses from different people. Some yeah. of them just couldn't accept that I was in law enforcement and yeah. sit across the table and they'd talk to me like I'm still T on the street yeah. and try to get me to agree with them while the FBI agents asking questions. Um, other ones were just shut down. And I, you know, look, I, I can't even blame somebody for if you knew me for a year yeah. and, and, I'm pleading with you in the same manner I was before, only now I'm admitting that I just double-crossed you. Yeah. It's going to be difficult to elicit that trust right back across the table. Right. But in my mind, I really, I mean, I was genuine. The only thing that I can say for the people that I really advocated for that turned out to have successful sentences cut and all yeah. that stuff was that, you know, there are times when, like, you know, I'll walk up to a little kid or a dog that bites everyone else but me because I, sometimes you can just sense like I'm 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 truly genuine when I say yeah. what I say. And sometimes people can sense that, you know, some people have good discernment. And I think that's that's the only thing I can chalk that up to because not everybody did. Some of the guys that I wanted the most to get no years got 16, 20 years. Yeah. But that wasn't something that I could control unless they allowed me to control it. And I, like I said, I can't even really fault them for it. Yeah. I mean, they were involved. So 
it is what it is what it is. When you get in that game, that's part of the process. You get in the game, you know you're going to get caught. I mean, people are paid to make a full living and support their families by trying to catch you. Yep. And that's what you decide to do. But it's really deeper than that. It's all systemic, which I said. It started yeah. with the kids and the environments and the systemic issues of racism or poverty and the way we deal with people like that, which has been a little bit more of, of an insightful thing for me as of late. So it's really just trying to educate myself further and trying to to be somebody that can make a change in small areas that can, if we can prove up models that actually really work and help people yeah. uh, be mentored and coached out of those situations yeah. that are very unfortunate. They're unfortunate for everybody. I mean, the public doesn't want crack dealers and people driving by. Right. You know, a lot of these guys that I've, that I've spoke with are like, look, I used to be that that hood rat driving around and we'd go do a drive-by or we'd sell this or that. And and then I managed to not be in prison when I turned 30. And then I have a uh, have two sons now and like now they see it. Like yeah. it's a perspective thing too. Yeah. But, you know, I wasn't exposed to that stuff. I mean, if you expose somebody in, in my disposition when I was young yeah. to, hey, we want you to sell drugs and go into this big thing and we're going to we're going to go money. intimidate these people and beat them up with a bat and we're going to gang up. And I would have thought, well, that's ridiculous. I would never do that. But yeah. that's because it wasn't part of my culture at all. Right. So part of it is just understanding the environment these kids are it's coming almost, up with. They have no choice. Like it's it's destined to end up yeah, this way and, for some and people. It's not that they even don't have a choice. It's just it is it is part of what happens in their environment. And right. a lot of times without the parental control, I'm being, hey, I was raised, you know, with my seven siblings by my grandmother. I mean, yeah, that's a tired 60-year-old woman that's right. trying to keep up with all these kids. She's already raised kids. Now she's raising more kids. I mean, it's just, like I said, the, the situation is dire. Yep. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't put the people in jail that do what they do, but it does mean that we should try to look into what is causing that environment to occur and ways that we can get the information access and access to uh, the right people and uh, the right uh, coaching and sometimes money. You know, I'm not saying throw money at it, but yeah. there are certain peoples that, you know, I, I, I consider myself lucky now that I could, if I had something that was really dire, I could come to you yep. and say, Hey man, I really got to talk to you about this. This is like a really important project. And you would sit down with me. Yeah. If somebody who's 28 years old and just got out of their grandma's house, got out of jail, but has a great idea, turned their life around, came to you, it would be difficult for you to, or me. Yeah. I mean, I'm putting that on you. I'm putting that on anyone. Yeah. It's just because we have a relationship, part of this thing is systemic, that, that I've been able to achieve a certain place in life where I can gain access to things that other people through systemic situations do not have access to. Yep. So that's where I, I, I like to ask people a lot of questions and, and learn. I, I, I consider myself like the, the white guy with the cooler uh, perspective of the black community because I got to live amongst that and see people without a guard up and things like that. It was, it was very enlightening, you know, through that whole process. And so I continue that today. I have friends that I sit down with and just pick their brain. They think I'm nuts, but they enjoy it too. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, that's kind of part of what I was talking about, you know, expanding into, you know, to, to podcasting or whatever. We are going to hit on that because it is, it has been fascinating even over the last couple of years, how you have really put yourself out there to try and fight this problem that can almost seem like it's impossible to fight. Yeah. 
Um, do you think any, I, I, I'm immediate things that go through my brain are things like, um, when you're like the things that can happen in prison, that when you're released, you're given some certain degree that when you go back out to the real world and you're calling on, you know, the real world again, you're not showing up with a monkey on your back. You're like, you don't have to explain your past anymore. You, you've somehow cr- uh, figured that out by doing enough in prison that now gave you like the green check mark. I'm wondering if there's like private businesses that could be created so that you're doing good, but you're also doing well, which tends to yeah. entrepreneurs usually will figure something out. Uh, yeah, good maybe ones better will. than a nonprofit would. Yeah, good ones will. It's it's a conundrum, and it's yeah. the same. It's the same reason why you have like you know you're a, a real estate guy, so. It's like somebody coming to you saying, hey, look, we have this dilapidated neighborhood in Fort Worth that really needs someone to go over there and invest in it. We really need to we need to put a big uh, Walmart in there. We need to put a this and this and this. And you know that as soon as you put a Walmart there, you're going to have robberies twice a day and you're going to have other issues. And that doesn't mean that you're going to make money and you're not the charity. So you're there's that fine line between how do I do something that's right, that's not irresponsible. So part of it is trying to to gain the education and access of the people within that community that can sustain something that's put in there. Yep. And and that's all educational really. And you know, so that's that's where I think you have to start is you have to get people uh select people cuz you know, like it's a it's a it's a problem. You you can't say look you're going to take these people that are poor and less educated and just stick them somewhere and give them money. It doesn't work like that. Right. I, I, my mind's already kind of racing on I'm, immediate comes to mind is like, uh, you've probably, maybe you have, haven't heard of opportunity zones. Have mm. you heard anything about that? No. So the, the Trump administration put into place, they went to every state and talked to every governor who was required to talk to every mayor. And uh, every state came with all these areas that they call opportunity zones. It's literally a geographic boundary and so there's several of them in East Fort Worth and there may be like a mile square wide and everything in there if you in, and and without getting too much into it basically if you're willing to invest money in those neighborhoods for the next 10 years anything you make is tax free and if you're selling an asset even if you're selling a stock which traditionally you can't uh, exchange tax deferred any asset that you sell, if you immediately put that money into those opportunity zones, you do not pay tax on that gain. So as long as your money stays put for a minimum of 10 years. And then there's all these other incentives on top of that. If you develop new buildings, if you start a business, you just keep whittling away at the tax master. So it's a way to get private business to start bringing capital to these areas yep. that otherwise have been deserts. But I'm, I'm thinking even along the lines of you go to the grandmother with seven, seven, um, you know, kids living with her and just tell her that the city says something along the lines of if you don't pay property tax and you're willing to take that money and put it in some type of online education program that she could pay for and provide to her grandkids at a very early age, you take something that the city's already spending a lot of money to try and make those neighborhoods better. Mm-hmm. And you're just saying, don't pay us your property tax. Instead, you're going to pay it here, and somehow it brings education and things that otherwise that property tax bill is 
getting in front of. Yeah. Um, it's almost for not. I, I mean, ideas like that are, are fantastic because whichever direction you attack it from, right. the whole point is to not look at it as so insurmountable, but just to look at a piece and try to tackle it. Yep. Someone like you or someone like me might take it from a completely different angle, which is makes sense because your expertise is different also. Yep. Um, but if we take a little piece of it and say, you know, we're working on the education part, we're working on the, you know, financing the neighborhoods part. When, and eventually, if we can create that model, yep. it finally makes sense. And I think 10 years is a decent amount of time, too, because you're forced to actually maintain it and make it succeed, yep. you know, over a 10-year period. Um, then I think that's we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. Then you can say, look, Fort Worth has this model where they're doing this and that, and they're attacking it from both sides. They're getting good response from the neighborhoods. Yep. They're having kids that are growing up and coming back and and spending time in that neighborhood doing you know uh, betterment programs and contributing back to the neighborhoods with success. And they're being paid fairly to do so, and they're creating more educated people to come up and follow in their etc. So ideally, that's how you do it. And, you know, it's going to take time and there's different approaches because there's so many facets to it, which is why I say I don't pretend to know everything. Right. I just have a perspective that makes me more intrigued about learning more because I know, look, I'm part of the system. You're part of the system. They're part of the system. And so I'm trying to learn more about what I do as a person who is hypersensitive to not doing something that might be a racially insensitive or whatever, I want to learn what I'm doing that is systemic. Yep. Because uh, there's tons that I do that I'm unaware of. So part of what I try what to- What are things that like nobody knows they're doing to add to the system that's systemic that anybody could relate to? Is there anything that just jumps out that anybody listening to this could say, yep, I do well, that? Uh, well, part of it was just the access. The, as the access thing is- is kind of part of it and recognizing that that's not necessarily systemic, but it was part of, you know, the, the way things are, you know, I had a, I had a guy and I, I don't want to go into detail on yeah. this because I won't be able to get it right. Cause I, we got cut short and yeah. it, this was the last fascinating interview I had. So I talked to this guy, very well educated, uh, black male s tells me over a drink one day, say, Oh yeah, we're, I'm trying to do something in my neighborhood. It's a poor neighborhood. This guy's got money, but he's staying there because he wants to do the right thing, develop the neighborhood. He goes to a bank. The bank turns him down, says he has a debt to income ratio issue. And he says, you know, that's where, you know, racism is at its peak and this and this and this. And I'm I'm confused. You know, I said, I said, all due respect, I'm I'm trying to understand that. I've been told by banks, too, that I have a debt to income ratio. And that's like just a part of it. But when you come from a system of poverty and you have to do more with less access. Yep. And they say, look, you can fix this debt to income ratio issue. If you just, if you can put 10 grand down, we can make this happen. That would be, that would be an easy solution for someone like us. We mm -hmm. figure out, we, we go to our connections and our resources, we raise the 10 grand, or we have the 10 grand, or we borrow the 10 grand from a personal uh, resource, and then we make that happen and we proceed on. Right. And he's saying, as, as a model, if you have somebody that has the right idea, the right gumption, and a reasonable amount of money to where they should be given an opportunity to succeed, they don't have the access yep. that we normally have. And so therefore, part of the way things are being set into motion comes into play in a situation like that, which yep. 
again, was like, that was like one of the eye openers to me. It's like, well, I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but that's what I'm trying to learn. That yep. was the first time I was like, man, can I invite you for coffee? Yeah. You know, I can drink whiskey again, but you know, let's, let's sit on coffee because <laughs> I may need to talk your ear off. So I find it fascinating. Are you familiar with microfinance? No. So microfinance, James Bashera, who's a, a great, great friend of mine. He's been on, on the show. He taught me about microfinance and pursued an entrepreneurial uh, venture doing it. Um, but it's basically um, in in countries that are the most poverty uh, the most poverty stricken countries in the world. Uh, microfinance institutions are these institutions that are set up in order to give a hundred dollar loan to a farmer in Nigeria that they don't even have running water, and mm. it's like. The thing that that um, microfinance has proven, and not just microfinance, but capitalism in general, the most um, debilitating thing for whether it's ge geographies, um, cultures, anything, is an access to affordable capital. So in America, we take advantage of the fact we have four or five percent capital. When you're in these countries where they don't even have credit reports or anything, and, and your cost of capital is like a hundred percent. Yeah. You can't do much. Right. And so these institutions have been set up as a way to basically organize being able to lend money to folks that by all means are folks that check all the boxes as someone that could pay off a loan, but just have never been given an opportunity. Okay. Um, so they're still vetted in terms of, of the actual endeavor and capabilities to yep. a degree still. And so James had created a, a, a deal where you Tegan could get on your phone and scroll through all these projects that are happening. There might be a farmer in again, Nigeria, that's raising a thousand dollar loan for his tomato farm. And you would lend it to the microfinance institution who would pay you 8% on your money. They would lend it to the farmer at 10% and you get a 2% spread. So you're doing well and doing good. Mm -hmm. It's something, it's something along those lines, even here in America, where to your point, if you don't have access to affordable capital or you can't get it at all, you're really stuck. And when you're yeah. forced to take these credit cards that have these huge high interest rates and your debt to income ratio goes through the roof, you have no other option but to have a bad, right. like you're forced into it. Yeah. Cause you don't have, the, you don't have the ant that yep. believes in you that can, I mean, even on a small scale, I mean, if you don't have an ant that can give you 1500 bucks, I mean, you're laughed out of the room. Yep. Then I mean that's a significant thing, and it made me it made me think back. I mean I rarely borrow money. I didn't borrow money to start my company. I don't I don't like borrowing money, but borrowing money is part of the process. Yeah. I mean obviously if you're gonna make leaps, you need to have a plan and vet that plan and make sure that people are willing to buy into it. I get it, but on a small scale, I mean starting back to when you were a kid. I mean when you wanted to start something, I mean I borrowed money from my parents or. From I borrowed money from my friends' parents for yeah. stuff that, you know, that got flushed down the toilet, of course. Yeah. And they probably even knew it, but were willing to help me because of my enthusiasm or whatever it was. And that just doesn't exist and for a lot of people. Yeah. And so that perspective was was just interesting for me. I'm not saying it's lost. And and we did start getting into the, you know, to the people that pool their capital, the the private lending and, and all that kind of stuff, which is possibly more opportune as well. But I wasn't trying to solve the issue yeah. as much as learn more about possibly something that I don't even think about or 
God forbid, I'm contributing to the problem or whatever. So it just those are the types of things that I just am, am interested to learn more. I'm sure there's more. There's, I'm sure there's tons more that I do. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, all right, so I'm we're we're back to 08. Um, when did you start? So now let's kind of chapter two. Let's start talking about what you're doing today and, and the business okay. that you run today. Uh, when did you when did you get the idea and when did you start it? Um, like I said, my my brain was pretty fried after yeah. the fishbowl thing, and I, you know, going back into a position, I went back and worked in the gang unit, and it was you know it's a pretty loose thing. We have you have freedom to roam, but nothing like what I was doing. Obviously, uh, it was difficult transition back, and I'm trying to stay motivated. But I also noticed that there were opportunities knocking because I had just run through a gambit of attorneys who would try to crucify me or whatever, and we'd sit in the halls and talk, and, and I had all these new relationships. And for a few years, I'd thought about delving into investigations or, or something of that nature, and it just wasn't something that the police department at the time would allow. Their general orders prohibited it because of the conflict of potential conflict of interest, and right. et cetera. So every, every uh, move that I've made um, to, to this point and forward is based on a potential opportunity. So no one can ever talk to me about luck that hasn't prepared for their lucky moment. Yeah. And uh, so part of what I saw was um, all these relationships with these attorneys that I never had before and the opportunity you know, presented itself to me. Um, I, I decided to, to jump off and start TSN, which was based on security and investigations when I started privately, I, privately. So I left the police department with no clients because it was illegal to have clients or be licensed. So I essentially jumped off, you know, created a plan with my wife who had to hold the fort down and all that kind of stuff. And we, as a team kind of, kind of faded about two years of work, uh, Man, and you know how it goes. Yeah. I mean, that's starting from making zero dollars for two years is is not ideal. Yeah. But it forces you to absolutely hustle. And knowing that the opportunity was there, I, I was kind of old school knocking on doors and going to those attorneys and saying, hey, do you have a few minutes? I just want to stop by and chat with you about something I'm kind of getting going. <clears throat> if they couldn't help me themselves, then they were referring me to other people. And I would start taking on work. Dots. Yeah. And start taking on work. So we started primarily as investigations because that's how my door opened. So as the security thing started to blow up, um, I got, you know, one of the and local what's investigations, just paint a picture of for, for the business world. Um, so we investigate anything from missing persons to, uh, family law issues, child custody cases, uh, vetting of people that are jumping into investments or uh, to investigating deaths to, I mean, we investigate a lot of things depending on, you know, who we have present. You know, we right. run about five or six investigators right now and we stay fairly busy with them. And if it's within our expertise, then we run at it. So a lot of things lately have been, you know, um, dealing with, uh, vulnerability assessments and, you know, things like that, where somebody will have a, a lawsuit and saying these people didn't have property security protocols in place or whatever. And we can come out there since we do investigations and security. It's an ideal kind of a thing for that, whether it be expert witness work 
or going out and actually performing an assessment. So we do lots of consulting and stuff in that regard too. Um, and then the security end started blowing up when you know we started picking up a couple of big bigger contracts with some uniform security, and then we picked up a, a local billionaire's uh, job and started taking care of he and his family. And that blew up so much that we had to kind of forego some of the investigations. And since then, like I said, we've kind of balanced that out a little bit more and focusing more on trying to rebuild that investigations arm, uh, which is why I said we have we've got five or six investigators and that about, you employ. Yeah, yeah. And about 70 security people. So it's you know, it's it's still lopsided, so, so to speak, but they're so entirely different that they don't really interfere with one another because right. they're, they're so they're so different. They're tied in. In terms of, you know, we le a lot of what we leverage with our investigations is, you know, we have, uh, you know, we're securing a bank and we have a suspicious vehicle that keeps, you know, cruising around the bank or looks like it's casing it or whatever. They can call in the office and we'll run plates and try to background or whatever. So there's different ways that we can leverage that kind of stuff, too. Um, so I just I mean, I I just old school hustled. It was. I'm a very unifocused person when I decide I'm going to do something when I went from uh, music to law enforcement. When I went to law enforcement into narcotics, I was just reading real life stories about how people did it and, and just tried to, to gather as much information as I possibly could. And the same thing when I went into business, um, everyone would come up and start asking me about, um, so have you gotten to do a bunch of cool courses or travel with these people and, and do a bunch of tactical courses and learn all this? And I'm like, man, tactics are like, the last thing on my mind at this point, because what I needed to dive into was was business and not only developing the business, but sustaining the business that we that we have and be able to serve the business and serve the employees that we have. So that's what I really dove into, you know, everything from, you know, from the Jim Collins type stuff um, on through just learning concepts and, and leadership and understanding people and how to actually structure of the business and you know i'm you know i still kind of delve into the stuff like that i don't necessarily read every book that's out there but because certain books apply and certain books don't everything's on about leadership these days and leadership is i think you can teach leadership only to a certain degree yeah i think we've had that conversation before oh, yeah. there's only so much you can do with someone who wants to be in leadership that doesn't have the type of personality that fits a leader in the culture that you have. So yep. a lot of it's been focused on that too. Like I said, we're, you know, we're, like I said, about 70 employees or so, and it's been an adventure once we started making money and there's steering the ship and trying to figure out how to diversify the leadership team so that we're doing a better job at serving the people that work with us and serving the people that work for us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a giant monster, but it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. As soon as you think you have it figured out, it all starts over again. <laughs> it, it does change. It changes and that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm just one of my processes right now is, is trying to look at a potential restructure. I don't care. I mean, yep. you know, people are like, well, how many more positions like this are there going to be available? I, said, I don't know. I might invent one tomorrow. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it is that there's this structure is not in stone. And just because all these spots here as the such and such manager that are filled, and those people aren't leaving doesn't mean you don't have a place to go. Right. Because if you show yourself to be a fantastic asset to the company, then I'll create a position for you if I can leverage you in that way. Right. You know, that's that's really what it's all about. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I've learned the most is you don't really start your company just once. You kind of start it 
every couple of years from a sense of you have just new, there's just a whole new set of challenges from the, the previous. And yeah. every time I feel like I'm getting comfortable with where I am now, I have to step up my game again because we've brought on more people or we're bringing on more leadership. Or if you want to get to where you want to get to, you're going to have to bring on this type of leadership. And this type of leadership is going to require a vision that's much bigger than the one that you have. Yeah. And, and trying to match up goals with people, with process, with cost. And um, it has it very often felt like, uh, not that I'm starting from total scratch, but that every, you know, so often you're kind of brought back to, okay, well, how do I get to this next step? Because it sounds like you, definitely me. I never worked for anybody uh, in the sense of I don't have a playbook where I saw somebody who did this and I know every step where I'm supposed to be. You're yeah. just constantly surrounding yourself with people. And I think you and I are both kind of lifelong learners. It's just, yeah. You just never stop. And learning. in particular, what um, one thing that I'm learning at every stage, and we haven't been in business for 11 years, but when I started, I was I was it. You know, my myself and my wife were, you know, she was handling all the finances. She was working with a private wealth client doing accounting and stuff, but on the side was making sure my books were straight and I knew right. what, what, how to move my money because I certainly don't. Yep. And then when we'd get a call for an investigator, then I would be an investigator. And then we'd get a call and say, hey, can you do security for this party? Then I'd put on a uniform and go do security <laughs> for the party. And then can you do this such and such a protection job for this executive? Then I'd put on my suit and I would work it until I couldn't work it. Yep. So at every stage of my business, I was doing everything which is kind of how it's supposed to be anyway. When you're starting, you kind of do everything that you can you're until kind of the crack you, dealer on the street. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. That works their way up. Right. Yeah. So, um, but the problems that exist in, in my company and our company is that I need, I'm learning piece by piece what to take my fingers away from, because yeah. you also have to, you know, empower people and you put them in positions to do such and such and such and such. And then at every turn, you know, somebody just promoted somebody, last week and they're saying hey is there a reason why people need to copy you on this every single time and i said well that's because i was the only one that was actually reviewing these since we started this company and as we get bigger and bigger and bigger i have other people help me review them but essentially i'm still reviewing them and he's like well how about i review them because there's my oversight and everything else and you know it's again it's just something that i had my fingers in a pot that I never thought of relinquishing which helps me immensely but it also gives me stress because I'm like, are you sure you're going to review all these? Because yep. forever I've, this has been my lifeline to the boots on the ground. I need to make sure everything that's happening is happening. But that's part of it. You have to, you know, you have to learn to trust people, whether you've been burned or not. And I've certainly been burned before, but it's learning how to relinquish certain things and let people empower people to do what they do. And that was one of the big lessons I learned from my billionaire client. Yep. You know, I was like, how do you keep from getting burned? Because you bring these wonderful minds into your business and you give them all this access. Yep. And then they bust off and start a company and they start taking your clients with them. Like, how do you how do you rebuild from that? You yeah. we just have to figure out how not to go bankrupt and keep starting. Because if you're going to grow, you have to learn to trust people again if you've yeah. been burned and hedge your losses so that the next time you have less to lose or there's less of a chance that that can actually repeat itself. Right. So of the times that I've gotten burned and almost taken out of business, you know, if, if 10% of the issue was on me, you know, I learned, I learned the significant lesson that I need to own that 10% 
instead of worrying about digging graves for the people that walked off with my business, right. I need to focus on myself and figure out how I can avoid allowing that 10% to exist the next time so that it's less likely to ever happen again, even though I know that it might. Yep. And then try to be try to be confident enough to put more people in place that I also trust the same way I trusted the last people that smoked me and and know that my goal is to grow and that's the purpose behind doing that. So yep. So you're involved in private security. You're obviously working with businesses. Are you drafting off the success of a lot of these businesses that are so successful that they need private security? Like you're picking up on things along the way. Is it almost a built-in mentorship or it's 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 totally different world? No, that's a cool question because I think even if it was a different business, our our whole premise is to partner with businesses that we believe are doing good things. Yep and come in and enhance their business by partnering with them yeah. so that they have less to worry about on the security end. We we present in a mature, non-scary, non-judgmental way where their vulnerabilities are. Right. We try to fill in those vulnerabilities and give them assurance that we're taking care of it. Uh, vet the process by keeping them informed on a weekly basis of these are the things we're seeing, these are the things we've been doing, and show appreciation. So ultimately, yes, um, because when businesses are doing good things. I mean, sometimes they fall off, sometimes they don't. I yeah. can't control uh, the f- business savvy of people running certain businesses. Right. But um, the ones that are growing are have become significantly better and we obviously we grow with them. If they right. expand and say, hey, you know, we just opened a new building in Dallas. We Now we have Dallas and Fort Worth and we're part of the program, then we expand to Dallas with them. Right. So in a very small way, that's part of it. You know, our the relationship building aspect, you know, that you and I have talked about before is the same way. I mean, trying to establish relationships in a business is a very contrived thing at first until you realize, or until me at least personally realize that a lot of the relationship building that I do is not actually intended to serve a specific purpose. So, um, a lot of that has to do with just having relationships with people that are good people and that good people breed other people's success. Yeah. And you have those small circles, uh, you know, that, that constantly support one another at different levels. Yeah. And so you see those people that you support in whatever way. I've got people that will call and say, hey, man, do you mind if I bend your ear? Yeah, and normally I'm going to charge you several hundred dollars an hour, but of course you can bend my ear. I'll buy your lunch and I'll share whatever I can because yeah. you're that dude, you know, yeah. or you're that woman or you're the whatever. So those relationships are really invaluable. And you and you end up growing with that sect of people because those same people are going to pass you on to someone that asks them what they can do about such and such. And they say, well, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to call TSN because blah, blah, blah. And they already believe in you. So that's not even, I'm not even marketing. I'm talking to a, a bank teller or a whatever that eventually becomes a somebody or that doesn't even become a somebody that has their managed branch manager say, we right. had just had a robbery or we had a whatever. I mean, they already know who they're going to call because it's not about a, it's not a status thing. Right. It's not a business ownership thing. It's just a good people begat good people thing. Yep. And I've been to lunches and all kinds of stuff that seem so insanely unrelated to anything that I do or introducing people that seem so unrelated because the purpose has nothing to do with growing businesses. Yep. It's just about saying, hey, man, 
this guy's a super good dude yeah. and this guy's a super good dude. And I would love for you guys to know one another. And yep. that again is part of the, the process in which I've discovered. And it's a genuine relationship then. Right. You're, it's not networking. It's not we're switching chairs and I'm handing you a card. In fact, that 99% of the time I never hand you a card. Yep. Uh, and for that reason, if they really click and they really do feel like, Hey, these are good people. then when you leave, you know, he or she's as just going to, reach out to you whenever they need you, but they're not going to even ask for a card or care about a card because that's has nothing to do with the purpose of just the relationship. So in that sense, um, I think that's been just as significant as actually working within the businesses that grow. Right. Um, do, is it harder to, to commit a crime today with like iPhones and, and the internet and technology? I watch a bunch of Dateline and like, Every time somebody commits a crime, they just go like, look at their cell phone records and they're like, you were next to the cell phone tower. So it was definitely you, um, is uh, maybe the question is like, is it, well, one, is it harder to commit a, get away with something today than it was 30 years ago? Or are people just getting way smarter because of technology? I think it's, um, I think it is harder. Uh, that's a good, that's a good question, by the way. It is, it is harder in a lot of ways because we're seen in places that we never would expect. Yeah. And the perspective from behind the scenes when you're actually investigating a lot of these things and you're able to go up and down Magnolia Street and pull camera footage from seven different businesses and figure right. out where this car came from, that's pretty significant because yeah. the car driving down the road is looking for people that might be able to see them but not understanding that, you know, that's it's – there are many different ways to figure it out. And depending on the sophistication of the case, yeah. you can also leverage satellites and all that kind of stuff, which has been kind of online for a long time. I think a lot of people really where it is, is there's a threshold of importance and the leverage of resources in order to get that information. So it's not as easy at, you know, waste that run into this with the dope dealers all the time. I was like, well, you know, I got to get rid of this phone cause they're probably, you know, the feds are probably listening in right now. And I'm thinking, the feds don't have time to be listening to you. Yeah. I mean, they're just these little piss ants, but yeah. you know, and the, there's only so many feds and they have to pick very important things to go on a wire and put together all that kind of, and most people they're not listening to. Right. Same thing with the government, you know, thing when the, the nine 11 thing occurred and people are all worried. I understand in principle why they're worried, but that's a lot of people. I mean, they're not listening to me. They have yeah. no interest. Yeah. <laughs> Unless I, you know, create a reason it's, it's not happening. So, but I think technology is progressing and there is going to be a caveat and, and kind of a, a synergy of issues that, that come to play as this AI thing comes into play. Yep. A lot of people are, a lot of good people are discussing with other good people about where we need to morally draw lines and everything else. But the, the unfortunate fact is I make my living looking through the glasses of the bad guy yep. and they're not going to stop developing this stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah. And how do you, how do you build ethics into AI is created by humans, which have biases and whichever human creates that form of artificial intelligence, you have no idea their background or how, how do you set the rules for what's truly right and wrong? And yep. what they believe in Japan is different than what we believe in. Does it, AI doesn't just stop at the border and say, I'm done working here. Right. Like at, at some point where, where does it end? And yeah, I've, I've been fascinated, been reading quite a bit about uh, AI ethics. It's 
it's we're nowhere close to like any really no. good answers at this I know. point. I'm I'm also quite as infatuated. I I I do have a little bit of concern. It's exciting concern, but like I said, I know that the problem is that the bad guys are going to continue to advance. Yeah. And leverage it for their own benefit. So yep. it kind of makes it difficult to stop back and take a breath and take time to figure out how to proceed ethically when someone else is excelling at it and leveraging it before we're ready to launch it. Yep. And so that's that's kind of my perspective too. And then why I think there's going to be some degree of concern when that transitions. Will you grow? Will a growth avenue for you be through like cybersecurity or adding that into your repertoire? Um, that's that's been in talks. Yeah, and we've discussed that. Um, you know, I have some partners that we leverage. We do a lot of forensic investigation, computer investigations, pulling stuff like that. But um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways we could go. I'm also careful not to take too many leaps yeah. when I feel like we're successful here. Uh, I I'm careful about not impacting the people that are making a living by some kind of side endeavor that I have. I wouldn't say that's a side, yeah. it's related obviously, but it'd have to be really smart and we'd have to pull in the right people and to make it really worth their time, yep. we'd have to invest money in them Yep. Uh, and then go through that whole risk factor of, okay, I brought you in, like you can't leave with our clients and everything else starting that whole process again yeah. <laughs> or growing somebody from the ground up that's getting the training and learning it and then become something and then they leave you know that's the whole process so it's, it's a difficult endeavor but is it is definitely something that that we leverage i it branches out so deep investigations wise and security wise that a lot of times i'll refer work out without any points or anything i'll just say look i totally trust this person to take care of that aspect of the work and I don't even want to make money on it. It just gets too complicated and people need what they need. And again, it does me good for them to be served well and something that we don't do because we could go a lot of different directions. Yeah. That's interesting. You say you like, you see the world in a lot of ways through the bad guy's eyes. Uh, do you ever think that that's works to your disadvantage? Um, it could, but in my opinion, no, because, um, you know, I have the same, you know, a lot of people are just like, look, uh, there's a certain risk that someone's going to break into my house, but I live in this, this is a nice neighborhood and nobody ever comes through here. And then I'm freaking out. Like, yeah. I can't believe like I'm allowing you to be my client and you don't lock your front door. Yeah. Um, and I see that perspective from the other way. And I think mo much more it's used to my advantage. I also have a reasonable uh, temperature in terms of how far you need to go because a lot of what you do too, and I'll assess somebody's home or situation or a building or whatever, and you have to come up with solutions that are reasonable, that fit a culture, express what the types of risks risks that can that can come with that assessment and vulnerability, and then understand that there's a certain degree that absolutely should happen in a certain degree that other people are going to think is too extraordinary, you know, for what they, and it, so I think I have a pretty healthy perspective, but I have a great perspective from my line of work yeah. and knowing how people are manipulated or, or intimidated or what they think about. And, you know, that's why I say, I said, look, this is a very safe area, yeah. but if, if the 2% that live out here that wake up every day and look for that opportunity, find your door open, then you're screwed. And then you're calling me asking, can we be out there yesterday? And yep. that's not how it works. Yep. So it's your, it's essentially, I've just, I just try to express like, this is a small percentage. Yes, but you have to weigh the 
cost versus gain, essentially, and say, look, maybe you could start with locking your door so that it's not such a wonderful opportunity for somebody who's actively seeking an opportunity. You don't have to change your whole way of life. And, you know, how many people do you know that have these great alarm systems that never set them, for right. instance? Yep. Like sometimes it's just little bitty things and explaining the consequences, understanding that, look, you might be right. You might continue to go on and on and on. But this is a different day. Right. I mean, ever no one used to lock their doors. It was just a thing. It was yep. fine. But now even out in the country, a lot of people can't because bad guys are figuring out smartly that, well, out in the country, people don't lock their doors and they leave their bikes in their front yard. So that's where they go Yep. because it's a lot easier just to take a 30 minute drive and then throw it in a pickup truck and drive off with it. I don't even know how to ask this question. It like how many clients that call with a suspicion that something bad's going to happen. Like, I can't imagine a worse situation than knowing my house is going to get broken into and mm -hmm. it's not going to be good when it happens, but not knowing when, yeah. but it ends up happening anyway. I'm like, it came true. I was right. How much of it is like people are uh, just freaking out over nothing versus when by the time you've gotten a call, it's like something is going to happen if. Uh, yeah, um, I think it's split yeah. and it's, it's not necessarily paranoid people. Um, there's, there are paranoid people that call, Yeah, but I think, I think primarily if you split 50, 50, it's people that are very proactive and have a healthy recognition of society and the direction it's going Yeah, and other people that are like, Hey, we've been in business for 30 years. We've been in the same building. There's nothing that's happened. So we're good. Yeah. And so, and then those people call us back once again, I, it's just They're a relationship. Reacting. Yeah, which is, it's it's fine. It's just how some people are. And I'll meet with them for two hours. They decide it's not a fit and that's fine. Again, that's the no that I don't hammer. If they're, if they're good people and it's a relationship, that's fine. But if it's a business telling me no, because, hey, we're fine. I already know that's fine. I don't need to exhaust myself trying to nail a hard sell when someone's told me no. Yeah. So, um, and they'll call me. Because, you know, I was gracious and accepting no, and I gave them my time and educated them. And then when something happens, they'll call me. My just think, relating your business back to real estate, do developers ever consult with you when they're developing plans for a building on how mm -hmm. to build it to be? Do you usually get contacted by the architect or by the developer? Um, it depends. Uh, but usually it's, start calling you. it's a coordinated effort. Usually we have two doors. You can get me in the front door or the back door. <laughs> I've got cameras, but yeah, I might need to start calling you for just how to lay it all out. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we did it with, uh, one of the buildings downtown that just went up and we're working on a school now. And a lot of it's just, and you're, and we're sitting in on the meetings, you know, you know how those meetings yeah. are. And we've got the developers here and the architects here and they're, and then you've got the client here that's wants the designs done. So everyone's spending three hours talking about that. And then you got your two cents, you got to put in here and there about, well, this is going to be entirely unsafe, yeah. even though aesthetically, I think you got a cool idea. And then, then this is why. So we're not architects, but we're bringing to light the concerns that we have and why, which again, is me capitalizing on my seeing through the bad guys classes yeah. because that's the way I look at it. It was like, if I was going to try to hang around a school and assault a kid, how would I do it? And if you make the school like easy to just drive up and walk into a classroom, then yeah. well, that's opportune for me. Or yeah. if I can just park somewhere close to where I can watch recess, 
that's opportune for me. I'm thinking like, what is a sex offender going to be thinking like in terms of their opportunities? And a lot of other people are just thinking, you know, this would be a, a beautiful place to put, you know, a flower bed here, and that will separate the classroom from the parking lot, and it won't look so. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you need a lot more than a flower bed, and yeah. you need some distance and everything else so that you know that everyone that's on that property has been vetted to a certain extent. They either belong or they don't. And so when they're recognized as not belonging, it's some, it's an, a good reason to engage them, et cetera, whatever. So 50-50 is your answer. Yeah. In short. <laughs> is there anything uh, besides your current business that you're thinking about or working on? And yes. And it is a, it is a project that once again ties into the uh, charitable arm that I'm concerned with and the personal interviews and relationships that I'm starting with some of the systemic issues, what they think are all tied in, um, being a musician from the day and playing with primarily African American groups and everything else through my musicianship. Um, uh, I've, I've kind of started a, a plan of action and have, you know, I've got a, a music studio up and I'm collaborating with some artists around here, which once again, I'm, am preparing for the door to crack because based on the, on the book, they're, uh, they're making a TV series out of it. Oh, wow. And my goal is to ultimately leverage that opportunity to get some music placements in my own TV show and grow that, that into a business where I can continue to collaborate with artists who would, uh, get monetary gain from leveraging the the rights and publishing splits from the music that we make together um it which would also flip back to helping the fort worth community and the local musicians around here and then also um provide a way that we can we're leveraging the song purpose to fit the fishbowl but in essence it actually addresses the communication and the issues and the the conversation that I that I want to start anyway. Yeah. So it's very meaningful and very purposefully meaningful music. Yeah. It may not be music that fits every genre or every taste. Right. But and it may even be music that might be to some disagreeable. But my my whole purpose is to eventually um as my my I've got whiteboards all over my studio yeah. <laughs> with the ideas. So God it has not whiteboard. solidified yet. Yeah. I'm still working on it. Uh but ultimately, I would like to be able to continue to record and distribute music and enhance it with a podcast and conversations and include the music and the topics of the music and include, you know, one of my one of my big hang ups is that and this is, I'm not putting this on the media. So don't misunderstand me because yeah. I know the media does what they do and the media re re reacts to the public. So yep. it's really all of us. Yeah. But what we see in the media is extremism on both sides of these arguments, yep. whether it be police and, um, you know, African-American relations or racial relations or whatever it is, all we see are the extremists. Right. A lot of the issues can be solved so easily with intelligent people that are on opposite sides of the line, but are willing to sit down at the table and use their ears. Yep. And so what I'm trying to do with the music and with the potential podcast is to have these conversations uh, provide an outlet for artists to communicate their thoughts and feelings and get that conversation started where we start making change and give back to the community with some of the monies that we that we generate from that process. And 
do it that way. So I'll get back to you when I get my plan together. <laughs> I want to come. I want to come check out the music yeah. studio and. Yeah, we've uh, started recording a little bit already, and uh, like I said, I've got uh, several artists that I meet with. Of course, it's difficult to leverage the time, but yeah. right now I'm I'm trying to make it a priority, and you know, getting some of my uh, my chops back too has been yeah a lot of fun too. You know, playing different instruments and getting my vocals back, and and whatever needs to happen for a particular thing, it's super exciting. But I again, I'm I don't have a, a, an ambition to go on the road and tour. Right. I've got friends in the industry that have been friends forever. Yeah, that are now in huge places, you know, so I know that I have connections in the industry and they understand what the fight is about. And so I think I could I think I could make waves. Dude, I starting this podcast has been one of the uh, the coolest experiences of my life. And even in just being able to record those conversations and get those conversations on the phones of kids in these neighborhoods where they can listen to things that yeah. they're not used to listening to is, is another uh, great way. Yeah, dude, you're just contagious. Uh, <laughs> you've helped out a lot of people. And my guess is this is just really the still early on in your story. Um, yeah. I'm just glad to be a part of it and you're going to impact a lot of people. Well, thanks, man. I, I appreciate you as a friend and as somebody that I also learn from every time we sit down. Yeah. So I appreciate that. I feel like sometimes I'm all over the place. People are like, when they hear my story, they're like, <laughs> you're the same person. Yeah. You did what? Yeah. It's not, it's not that, uh, what I've done is grandiose as much as pretty much polar opposite. Every time I take a turn, I take a sharp one. That's all. Yeah. So, uh, thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's Thank good to you. See you as always. Everybody needs to hear this. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again. <laughs>